Support comes from Pacific Science Center, working to inspire the next generation of scientists and increase access to STEM education statewide through digital discovery workshops, science on wheels, and summer camps. More ways to support these efforts at PACSci.org. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke, your host. You've heard of going zero to 60. In this show, we're going to go from zero to 250. We're going to go from gridlocked intersections that may be policed by cameras to a bullet train that may or may not zoom in our lifetimes. And I'm not alone here. Phew! Thank goodness. I've got Seattle Times senior investigative reporter Patrick Malone. Hi, Patrick. Hi, Bill. Wild West newsletter author Eli Sanders. Hi, Eli. Hi, Bill. You still a Pulitzer Prize winner? <laughs> you keep trying to get him to take it away, but yeah. no, it's a okay. lifetime thing. Okay, excellent. KOW's arts and culture reporter. Welcome back, Mike Davis. Hey, Bill. Good to see you. And we, you can see us if you go to YouTube or Facebook, search KOW Public Radio. We're uh, putting cameras on the show, enforcement cameras, if you will. So uh, we have the hottest week of the year so far this week. And before we get to the downsides of that, because, you know, that's what we in the news media do, get to the downsides. Um, can we just start with the fact that a hot summer day can be a lot of fun? Thank you, KUOW reporter Casey Martin, for taking us to the Seattle Center International Fountain. The jets of cool water from the fountain call to Will Coons like an oasis in the desert. It's very hot out here, and I saw that water spouting out, and it's time. Coons is from Oregon, visiting with his wife. They were cruising around on e-scooters when they saw people running down to the water. He emptied his pockets and ran in after them, fully clothed. All right, Will, how was that? That was awesome, man. I feel a lot better. (laughs) Right on. Did anybody else enjoy the sunshine and the heat? We actually went to the fountain. My family did. Uh-huh. And it was nice. It's it's hot around the fountain uh, in that cement bowl, but it's great to run through it. Right. Yeah, I was at uh, Bellevue's downtown park last night, and the area that is unshaded, the, the play structure, empty. <laughs> and right next to it, the wa- little water park jammed, you know, and really fun to just sit next to. Um Mike Davis, the heat is also dangerous, however, even when you're trying to have fun. And that's that's been reported this week. Yeah, there was reporting from the South Seattle Emerald that since 2018, we've seen an uptick in drownings. They also did reports that showed that for black swimmers or black youth, 64 percent of them had little to no swimming skills. So there's been a a push to really teach more kids how to swim. So I guess we don't have to be only downers. Um, You know, Swim Seattle is a program from Parks and Rec in partnership with a bunch of local nonprofits. And they're out here doing the work of trying to give free swim lessons to kids who can't afford to learn how to swim. Yeah, it does. As you said, Eli, point out there's a systemic failure there. There is, yeah, it's, uh, that we have so many children who are growing up not learning to swim. Uh, it is expensive to take swim classes. It's not equitably available, swimming education. Drowning, according to the New York Times, is the number one killer of young children in the United States. Um, and I just wanted to throw out another idea on top of the good idea that uh, has been mentioned already. I I went to a college that required before anyone could graduate, no matter what their grades were, no matter how impressive they were, you had to be able to swim from one end of the pool to the other. And if to you could graduate to graduate, you <laughs> wow. could not graduate. And if you didn't know how to swim, they would teach you. If you really, really couldn't do it um, for some good, excusable reason, you could get a waiver. But the theory, as it was explained to me, was, you know, you could have the best education in the world. uh, And if you fall in the water and drown, it goes nowhere. Mm -hmm. So we're going to make you learn to swim before you graduate. You could make graduation from the Seattle Public Schools uh, contingent on learning to swim and make it uh, an educational requirement so that the schools, in addition to teaching gym, are teaching swimming lessons. And that would also go some distance toward uh, the equity piece where, you know, people in the sale public schools would be getting free swim lessons as part of the educational requirements. If you choose to bail out of the public schools and go to private schools, you pay for private swim lessons. Mm. Interesting. What do you think? Well, I mean, these are profoundly troubling statistics because these are preventable deaths and they're, you know, landing 
unfairly uh, and inequitably on one particular community. And uh, it looks like the answer is more programs like the one Michael mentioned, you know, getting more kids into swim lessons. But when I see what Mayor Harrell said in, in the South Seattle Emerald story, he says that every kid by 10 years old has access to skills to become proficient in the water. He says that's the goal. And I think that that's overstating it compared to what the resources have been, you know. Uh, sure, that's what you would want if you had a genie's lamp. But <laughs> but I think that it takes actual tangible effort here. And uh, it also takes rational, reasonable talk that says, you know, by next year we'd like to have 79 or 80 percent. If you just say, yeah, we want everyone to be able to do it, that really doesn't address the problem in an honest way. And Patrick used the word inequity. Uh, I don't know if we've gone through. It's not just an, an inequity in, in who can swim or who gets to swim, but there's so many layers here to who, where is it hottest and who's got access to a way to, to cool off and safety measures and, and all of that, Mike. Yeah, well, I think all of those things come into play when we're having this conversation of who we see drowning, right? So when you look at South Seattle, for example, where – NPR did some really cool research in 2019 about which areas of Seattle are the hottest. And there was one particular day where Georgetown was 98 degrees and Magnolia was 84 degrees. Mm -hmm. And there's all these statistics that show that South Seattle gets the hottest. So if you have the low income neighborhood where people are marginalized already and our city is just getting hotter, everybody's going to flock to the lake to go cool off. So if folks also can't swim, it's like the perfect storm. So yes, I wish we had a genie lamp where we could just snap our fingers. But at some point we do have to start taking some concrete action. Yeah. It, concrete action. Yeah. Um, and AC is expensive and, and beaches are not lifeguarded as much as they used to be and on and on. Um, okay. So by the way, the name Seattle has a, a program, it's called swim Seattle. So, uh, you know, or teaching safety swimming lessons. So Swim Seattle, if you want to go to the city website and find out about that. Um, when we, you know, where there's heat, there's fire. So I also want to talk about, there's not really a giant fire in Washington State right now. I think the biggest is the Diablo Lake, the North Cascades Fire, 4,500 acres. That one was sparked by lightning, but that is the minority of wildfires, Mike. Most, most fires are caused by us. I was so surprised, Bill, to see this reporting that came out of Fox News. It showed that 90% of the fires here are human-made. And I just got super curious, so I started doing more research. And it turns out people in our region, Washington and Oregon specifically, we are starting fires at a rate that just continues to grow and grow and grow. And we're in the process right now of collecting this data. So unfortunately, I don't have a bunch of answers to give you. But this is a growing phenomenon where people are starting to set way more fires. Why would that be? You think we'd be cutting back like we, we the wildfires. They're happening more than ever. The smoke, et cetera, that we'd be. Well, one thing we can do is be less you know, so many things were more lax back in the day. We'd throw stuff out the window. My father used to throw his fast food out the window, you know. <laughs> and then, But we start, we learn, right? And we, we think we'd be starting fewer fires. Well, so the data on this uh, comes to the conclusion that no one knows why, <laughs> essentially, yeah. yes. this is happening. So I'll just throw out my rampant speculation. Thank goodness. Yeah. I'm You're here. a Pulitzer Prize winner. So whatever you say, I'm just going to believe. <laughs> All right. Well, believe this, Bill. Okay. Um, I think it's possible that uh, the increase in population in Washington state leading to an increased number of people uh, who are camping and a lack of increase in, you know, the infrastructure for outdoor recreation leads people into more remote areas, more forested areas, more novice campers. Mm -hmm. And that contributes to um, to fires. Now, again, no one knows. That's my rampant speculation. I've got one other speculation that I'll share. Okay. I just recall growing up, you know, watching television, you couldn't avoid Smokey the Bear. You'd see him. Yeah. I Only don't... you can prevent <laughs> forest fires. Right. Someone will have to tell me the answer to this because I'm not on TikTok, but I don't know whether Smokey the Bear or the equivalent has actually migrated to new media. And perhaps, you know, Smokey's still out there on television but no one watches television anymore, and we're maybe not communicating through the channels that people now use, whether it's Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, whatever. Uh, maybe we're not communicating with the Forest Service or whoever the prevention authorities are aren't communicating uh, to people where they're at. 
Yeah, Smokey used to carry a shovel around and to to put. You know, he would tell you so how to true. put out the fires. You know, you make a fire, you cover up the fire, douse the fire. Patrick, your thoughts? Well, I just think there's a lot of ambiguity. And what is a human-caused fire here? Is it our electrical lines? Is it our tossed-out cigarettes? Is it firefighters you know, committing arson that we've seen some places? Climate change, human-caused climate <laughs> I think, change? I think all of the above. It's just like a combination of things. And if you've lived in drier parts of the country like I have, Colorado and New Mexico, and camped there, you see signs that say, don't you dare start a fire today. You know, and here... It, it was like, oh, my gosh, I'm seeing signs that say fire danger is moderate, you know, and mm. uh, I think that there's just a taking for granted almost in the Pacific Northwest that we're a little wetter. Things like this haven't happened. That's changing. And, uh, you know, I just would like to see some more detailed accounting of parsing out what qualifies as a human caused fire. Where these places are happening? What do they have in common? I would like one of those very expensive Washington State studies on this. <laughs> well, well, as you know, uh, forest fires are not my beat. So I had to read other reporting. But High Country News did report that when we're looking at these statistics, if they don't know what the natural cause of a fire is, it does kind of get chalked up to everything that you just mentioned. But also, there are statistics that show that people are doing a lot more outdoor recreation now than we have done in the last few years. There's also, they call them long-term campers. Um, I think they were speaking of the unhoused folks. They yeah, didn't use living that outside, term. Uh -huh. but, but they just said that people right now are interacting with nature a lot more than we have in the last few years, which also opens the door to more opportunities for fires to be started. Are fireworks even going to be a thing like in our lifetime? Are they just going to go away? I mean, it's, they're just harder and harder to justify. Sorry, well, kids. <laughs> that hasn't stopped them yet. <laughs> no, no. no the enough. justification of rock and roll, baby, seems to have been enough to this point, and I wonder if it'll sustain. Fair I think enough. We're, we're, we're growing up. Uh, I, I've become a homeowner, and I hate fireworks now. <laughs> I'm out there spraying my roof with water. Like I, yeah. I hope that we no longer do the fireworks thing. Well, we had our fun, the four exactly. people in this room. Yeah, so that's right. That's what matters. Okay, let's talk about rocking and rolling through the, the, the Cascade region on a bullet train. Will that ever happen? There's an update this week. We're going to take a short break and then go 250 miles an hour when we return. Support comes from Gather Pottery, hosting ceramicist Sarah Anderson, teaching a weekend sgraffito workshop for all levels, May 18th and 19th at Gather Pottery in Interbay. Learn more at gatherpottery.com. You've done the right thing by tuning into KUOW's Week in Review with our own arts and culture reporter, Mike Davis. We've got Eli Sanders here of the Wild West Newsletter and Seattle Times senior investigative reporter, Patrick Malone. Continuing on this week, Washington's Democratic members of Congress have asked the Biden administration for about $200 million to plan a 250-mile-per-hour bullet train between Vancouver, B.C. and Portland. Patrick, a plan. I've heard about plans and ideas <coughs> for a bullet train since I was the size of a bullet. Where, where does this actually stand? Is this happening? That's a tough one. Now, this is all over the country. We, we hear about this. Wherever you go, somebody wants another train or they want an extension of a train. So there are places where we've seen scaled down versions of this that exist. It's not a bullet train, but take for a moment New Mexico's rail runner, right? Let's talk for one second about what the advantages of something like this are. You're able to live in one of the poorer parts of the state, the South Valley of Albuquerque, where you can afford to live still and it isn't priced out. And you're able to work in Santa Fe downtown, be there in 15, 20 minutes, you know, maybe an hour tops from the farthest out. And you're able to get good paying jobs and still have affordable housing. These are the types of benefits I think that the Pacific Northwest wants as well. They want to be able, you know, wouldn't it be great to come from Tacoma to Seattle in 15 minutes and pay Tacoma rent or Tacoma level mortgage and earn Seattle type wages? But, you know... Everybody in the country is lined up for this, and it's super expensive. We're already talking about $350 million just in planning studies uh, to have a conversation like we're having right now. Yeah, and that is not engineering design. That is not environmental impact statement. It's what, what could we spend $350 million on to study the idea of whether we want 
a bullet train. I can't fathom what why why it's that expensive. Well, just and think I think about it, it. It would just be talking about things like what would the route be? What are we going to have to do infrastructurally? What mountains are we going to have to drill tunnels through? And also things like we just discussed about what are the merits of it uh, as, as a society, right? And uh, it's just super expensive. And when we look at even the Ballard Soto light rail extension, you know, $11 billion and a decade down the road, there hasn't been a nail put in the ground. Mm-hmm. So uh, as much as I would love to see this, I highly doubt it's going to happen in our lifetime. Yo, I love how I love how your mind went straight to, you know, equity and where you live and all of that because I'm trying to go to Portland Trailblazer games. Like if I could just <laughs> hop on a quick train, go to Portland, catch the Lakers when they're in town and come back home, I'd be sold right there. <laughs> but it doesn't sound like it's it, it's just so it's far away. And there's a question of whether fixed rail at that at that price tag you know things change and technology changes. I aren't aren't self driving cars eventually going to be networked so that they all move together? I'm not saying it's 250 miles per hour, but at least then there's an exit point and then you drive away and you've got your you've got your car to go wherever. I just don't know if 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 light if if, if bullet train is going to be the thing in the time it would take, not in my lifetime to build. Or maybe we'll be able to teleport before the yes, bullet train. That isn't appears. that the plan. To I move just, our molecules? <laughs> I just want to reframe for you, Bill, the $350 million cost of the study. Yeah. We're talking about um, a rail project that will cost $450 million per mile. So $350 million is a bargain. Wow. <laughs> what would you think of it that way? It's, it's, it's hard to also put it into my brain that we're going to go from Canada all the way down to Portland. I mean... We, we see what happened in California, right, in 2008 when they voted to do their light rail that was supposed to be done in 2020 that still isn't done now. And now they're thinking maybe 2025-ish. It was a, a project that was supposed to cost $33 billion that now looks like it's going to be north of 100 So yep. it's just like, how are we supposed to believe that we can get this done here, especially with the famous Seattle process with committees to create committees to talk to committees? It, it just it seems like we're being sold a dream. Hmm. Well, on the since since there's so much downerism, on the other hand, we're talking about putting a uh, citing a new airport because SeaTac is going to is you know it isn't up to the job. Nobody wants to have an airport, so this is a way. Uh, that's not churning out uh, fossil fuels. This is a way of getting around, and th- this area is going to keep growing, right? So it's what uh, how many people now we have in the between Vancouver and Portland? It's um, I think it's like nine million, and it's going to be more like twelve million, and that's a twenty five percent. It's a significant jump. So I'm wondering, uh, but but it's not like um, we're like we're going to stop growing. Well, just because certain elements of it are stupid doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. Yeah, and, I guess and, that's and I what I'm like, saying. You know, uh, a forward-thinking step is to do the planning study, you know, and maybe start planning that flag now because I think that there are certain states that have been doing this kind of thing for a decade that, uh, you know, maybe have a leg up when it comes to this infrastructure bill money, but the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago, and the second best time is today. So if we haven't done it already, maybe it's time to get our skin in the game and start planning for what is going to be the realistic rail option for the Pacific Northwest, because doing nothing never gets you there. Yeah, that's fair. Just because it's stupid doesn't mean I shouldn't do it. That's my motto. (laughs) You get me. Okay. Uh, So so we just talked about uh, uh, fast train. Let's slow it down now. Let's take it way down to a, a downtown Seattle traffic intersection. City of Seattle is about to install three more traffic cameras to watch for drivers blocking intersections or using the bus lanes. Patrick, your newspaper told me that the city's got eight other cameras going, and in less than a year and a half, there have been 53,749 bus lane infractions? That blew my mind. And then about 400 infractions for blocking the box. So if people don't like the illegal driving, does that mean we do like enforcement cameras? 
Not necessarily, you know, I mean, they can, they can also become an oppressive factor in someone's life. I know that, uh, it was an overt fundraising, you know, machine in Washington, DC, where everybody I knew when you had to renew your tags, you had to renew your license. You had just a ton of these things to clear up red light cameras and box cams and the whole bit. And I woke up with a boot one day on my way to the airport and I'm not even going to get into that, but I mean, it can really become just sort of a revenue generating source, but there are other things to think about as well, you know, and I'm thinking about culturally and how we regard police and how police regard us quite honestly. And it's, it's almost like we've removed every low stakes interaction with police, such as, you know, the uh, neighborhood traffic stop. You just don't see it. I didn't see it in Denver. I didn't see it in DC. Didn't see it in Baltimore. I don't see it here. And, uh, so you're not getting to know police that way and police aren't getting to know drivers except on these felony stops and things. We just don't see that. So there's also the other side of the coin, which is this takes sort of the officer's discretion out of offenses. And in a way, maybe that's a good thing. Is it saving lives for that reason? I just think there's uh, a lot to dislike about uh, creating a robot police force. I have been traffic camera and um, I at, at once both kind of resented it and appreciated it. I appreciated it for the efficiency. I didn't have to, you know, interact with a cop and be pulled over at the side of the road and, you know, maybe feel embarrassed as everyone whizzed by me. And I um, I guess maybe resent is too strong a word, but I, I didn't find it as helpful, quite honestly, because when I got this thing in the mail that said, you've been speeding and here's a picture of you speeding, I didn't even remember that I had been on the street where it happened. Um, and I just wonder in terms of the deterrent effect, right? Maybe maybe I've missed the point and this is just all about raising money for the city government. <laughs> but if we're trying to slow people down, then there is something, and, and I completely understand uh, the aspect of, you know, not everyone's person-to-person interactions with police officers are good and there's uh, a very good argument for getting police out of the interaction whenever you can. But in terms of teaching a lesson, at least for me, uh, I, I felt like, gosh, if I didn't even remember this and it was kind of a virtual thing and I paid my, um, fee and it's done. The next time I drive down that street, I won't have that kind of lived memory of like, Oh, this is where I got pulled over. I better slow down. Yeah. There's something physically memorable about having your day stopped for this thing you did sitting there and waiting and waiting and waiting for them to run your yeah okay i mean but there's also something memorable about knowing that there's that one intersection where you always get a ticket because i've been in that situation where there's this one sensitive light where i'm getting a ticket to the point where I would just go a different way so that I wouldn't have to drive through there. Because the light is too sensitive. The light was way too sensitive. <laughs> but, but Patrick, you, you talked about robot police, and that, that scared me. I was shell-shocked. I, I don't want that. Like We could have police be cameras, but I feel like they're starting to try to get actual robots to be the police, and that's a whole different thing. <laughs> well, when we're talking about blocked intersections, which, which is what these cameras right. are policing, these are not places where you want officers stopping everything and trying to pull people over and in the middle of a gridlocked intersection. That's where I was going. Um, we have, I mean, with so many people in our city, we're starting to see people who could drive actually start trying to do public transit. We're coming out of the pandemic. People are getting more comfortable. Blocking the intersection is something that I see all the time when I'm on foot and I hate it. And I'm probably one of the most pro car people that you will meet. But like, I just hate when people do that. So if we could have something to stop people from just doing that, that would be great. And I would argue that we don't need police hitting their lights because somebody is just sitting in an intersection. We don't have enough police for them to even be wasting their time doing something that menial. Just to validate Mike's sense of this being a huge problem. So I, you talked about 53,749 <laughs> citations for driving in a bus lane, similar to blocking a street, since March of 2022, since the Seattle Times. So I just did the math on that. That's 18 months. Uh, so that's more than 3,000 people blocking a bus lane per day in Using Seattle. Using a bus lane anyway. Blocking a bus lane. Is well, what or driving in, a, driving, driving in a bus in, lane. Sorry. Yeah, yes. Sorry. Using a bus lane. You're right. Yeah. So so that is a lot of um, people misusing the bus lane. Yeah. In their defense, bus lanes are super confusing. Are they not? 
You mean they're, they're some, they, they, sometimes they pop up in the middle? It's not like you always know they're on one side or the other. They're in the middle, or or there's a bus lane right before a place that I think I'm allowed to turn at, but I can't use the <laughs> bus lane to get from here to that spot. Can I just ask what is confusing about the lane that is fully painted in red <laughs> and says "bus" in giant letters? Nah, Bill's right. When you need to turn, you got to turn. Sometimes they put the bus lane right where you have to. It's true, but I haven't gotten a ticket for doing that. Here's my thing, though. Has has anybody seen a billboard about this? Has anybody seen advertisements on your social media channels from Seattle police saying, we got a problem with the way that you guys drive in intersections? Nobody's trying to educate this community about anything. They're well, just it saying, is painted red with the word bus well, lane. I'm, That's ta- I'm talking specifically about the blocking the box, the crosswalk stuff. Okay. Uh-huh. So, you know, we all know it's a problem, and we see it even at – uh, sort of low traffic intersections. I see it in my neighborhood at a four-way stop. You know, I just bank on getting hit when I'm coming to this one unless I'm paying attention. But where is the public education on this? If they're going to trot this out, they're going to give tickets that land harder on some communities than others economically. It's sort of a regressive fundraising technique, if you ask me, with the absence of an education campaign that says it's a problem. You know, I would like to see some public education before they get out the cameras and the calculators. Yeah. When you're in the intersection, you know you're not supposed to be hanging out in there when the light <laughs> changes. Are. But I think they aren't. T- if if it is such a problem that they need to create a government program to collect money <laughs> and to, you know, potentially affect insurance rates, other things, somebody's ability to go renew a license if you're poor, right? Maybe um, Smokey the Bear can say, only you can prevent blah, blah, It's actually blocking. Smokey Bear. There is no the in there not to be a nitpicker my, my here. Wow. But okay. Wow. I, got, I just got a, I just, I just got a ticket on, on, my, on my phone. I just actually, got a, this is part of the education campaign, so yes. you won't be fined anything. Just to be a cynic, problems depend on uh, the perspective you're looking at it from, right? So from the perspective of city government, it is not – a problem that they're making all of this money from traffic tickets. And that may, this is cynical, but that may be a disincentive for the kind of educational campaign you're talking oh, about. Oh, man. But it does make you wonder suspicion. about just crime in general, right? Like how many crimes that the police department and the city view as problematic have not been undertaken as education campaigns before being labeled, you know, a scourge on our city that requires government to extract money from us. Uh, I mean, the money is there to discourage people from it's a penalty, right? So I don't know to also say, oh, isn't it convenient? You're making you're printing money, aren't you, Seattle? <laughs> yeah, I guess. I don't know. Maybe but printing money before educating, enough. I think, is a little bit questionable. Fair enough. We yes, Eli. Your self-driving cars are going to solve this one too. See, <laughs> that's all I wanted to say. Um, before we take a break, uh, Washington state had the biggest increase in overdoses of any state according to the cdc uh, almost three thousand reported in just in march uh, that was a 25 percent jump compared to a year ago and uh, now the cdc says yeah, we probably report overdoses more than some other states but still that doesn't account for the whole increase and the city council in seattle did not pass a new drug possession law before splitting on their two-week August recess. So, Eli, does that mean overdoses are not considered an emergency by the city? I hope not. Um, I Danny Westneat wrote a column about this where he suggested that the city council is not acting like it's an emergency because they're headed out on vacation while failing to um, to act on the overdose crisis. This is a very complicated issue. And um, I don't know how much time we'll have before the break to unpack it all. But it it traces back to a Supreme Court decision in Washington State in 2021, where the Supreme Court struck down what was a really draconian uh, law in Washington State, criminalizing possession of drugs as a felony, whether or not you intended to possess the drugs. And the Supreme Court said that's unconstitutional. That's a due process violation and throughout our possession law. And so since 2021, the state legislature has been grappling with what do we do? And it took them, uh, you know, two and a half or so years, it seems like, to come up with a new law that passed um, this May, I believe it was. Yeah, statewide. Statewide, where possession is now a misdemeanor, and state law is um, 
or the state policy is to include all sort of all sorts of funding to try to divert people from criminalization or incarceration for uh, drug possession and toward treatment. But it's still a misdemeanor to possess under state law. And as I understand it, the the sort of ideological position in Seattle uh, that is kind of gumming up the city council, if you see it as stalled, um, is that you can't even call this a misdemeanor. That is too much criminalization. And we are not going to we don't want to penalize drug possession at all. Um, And that seems to be where things are stuck. The city council is not ready to get on board with the state's program, which would bring resources to Seattle for diverting people from um, incarceration and into treatment and have a a lot of outreach aspects to it with state money behind it. We won't get that unless we, uh, you know, get on the state's program of making this a misdemeanor. And the city does not have a better alternative or a better plan or an alternate route. And I think Danny Westneat's point in in a way is well taken. This this is no mystery that this has been an issue. The Supreme Court decision came down in 2021. The state legislature has been working on this for years. That is not news to the city council. And so it, it would have made sense to have either a decision to go along with the state or to enact our alternate plan especially given the scale of the overdose crisis in the city. Other comments? Eli took every single position that was possible to take. <laughs> but I think, I, think your, I think your question is, does city, is city council saying that this is not an issue because they chose not to fast track this particular bill? And to that, I would say absolutely not. Because overdoses are a problem, and we can run off all the statistics that say why it is a problem, not just in Seattle, in the country. But the bill that they were trying to fast track, I would argue, doesn't actually solve the problem of overdosing. Giving the city attorney the power to prosecute people doesn't stop people from overdosing on drugs. Proposing a bill that doesn't have any funding for alternate solutions doesn't solve the problem that people are overdosing on drugs. What I saw in that bill was a bunch of word salad. It was a bunch of words that say we don't we don't want to participate in the arrest to prosecute pipeline. But then you give us a bill with no concrete solutions to the arrest to prosecute pipeline. As a matter of fact, the only thing that's concrete in that bill was SPD's ability to continue to arrest people, SPD maintaining discretion over who does and does not get arrested. Um, the, the officer can decide whether this person is being a threat to anybody's safety besides their own. Exactly. There was no requirement of diversion and there was no funding for any alternatives to arrests. So all we really had in that bill was you can now arrest and prosecute people. Patrick, the city council will be back in a couple of weeks. This is going to be this is going to go on into the fall. So we will cover it uh, before we take a break. Any other thoughts on this? Yeah, I just generally agree with Michael on this one that they're really, you know, saying you prioritize treatment isn't necessarily prioritizing it. And there isn't a concrete provision for that. And if in these this two week break or even with the delay in September, city staff comes up with something that is actually filling in these gaps in the current bill, then you know, that two weeks was probably well spent. We're going to take a short break. Thank you for that. We went from uh, zero to 250 miles an hour. We are going to go from heat wave to freeze when we come back on Week in Review. KUOW's Week in Review. We are visualizing the show on Facebook, and uh, you can just search KOW Public Radio. Same thing on YouTube. I'm Bill Radke. We were mentioning Danny Westneat's column a few minutes ago. Uh, Patrick, what newspaper is that in? That would be uh, your Seattle Times. Ah, yes. (laughs) Patrick also representing the Seattle Times here, and we've got Eli Sanders from the Wild West Newsletter and KOW's own arts and culture reporter, Mike Davis. The uh, South Seattle Emerald is uh, reports that the community outreach team that, that suffered from a shooting in Rainier Beach a few weeks ago is still at work at that Safeway parking lot, which is such a community gathering spot. Mike, what should we know about the work of the Safe Passage program? Well, that was it was excellent reporting. Um, there was 
a situation on Friday night, as a lot of people know, a lot of people read about there was a shooting. But the Southeast Network Safety Net program is a program that had existed in that very parking lot for years. And they do community outreach. They have healing circles. And, you know, they give out food to people. They do all of these great things. And I was just happy to see an article that actually highlighted the work that has been going on in Rainier Beach and not just the violence, but showing that there are organizations like this one attached to the Boys and Girls Club that come to Rainier Beach and do the work of gang violence, gang violence prevention and just uplifting and doing outreach in the community. Uh, I agree. It was a, a great article and uh, humbling to to read about people who are willing to go out and do that work year after year, night after night, with no recognition, as Mike pointed out, until something happens. And tragically and unfortunately, ironically, uh, these people who were putting themselves out there to try to de-escalate ended up being victims of violence. So um, – it, it was really nice to read about them and their work and have a need of even greater appreciation for what they're doing and, and also to uh, have them out there as an example. There's more that everyone can do in their community. I do think that uh, given the reporting on what has uh, been the situation at that Safeway parking lot for years, it sounds like, and the statistics on the number of violent incidents and shootings – it is a systemic failure to expect uh, individuals to have to patrol the parking lot on their own and, you know, uh, make it safe for everyone just out of the goodness of their civic hearts. Not that that is not unappreciated, but there's obviously a role to play for the owners of that uh, that kind of it's a sort of strip mall type area. Um, there's. And the owners, by the way, the Seattle Times reported recently, are facing a lawsuit over the failure to um, keep that parking lot more secure. The allegation is that they've created a nuisance by not keeping it secure. And some victims of previous shootings, I think, are involved in that lawsuit. So there's there's that issue. There's the issue of just too many guns to begin with, which is our own failure as a society to grapple with that. And then there's any number of issues that you could legitimately overlay from social inequity to uh, lack of alternatives uh, for things to do on a, was it a Friday night or a Saturday night? Um, so I, I, I agree lifting up the work of, of what these volunteers are doing is important. I don't think this is something that volunteers alone should be asked to solve. And I, I think that it, it is just a reminder that we all need to do more, and our government needs to do more. I just have to really applaud Luna Reyna's story because uh, there was one quote in it that says, Bet you didn't know we were here for the last three years, did you? From Marty Jackson of the Safe Passage Program. And certainly that's true. I didn't know about that. But what I know about them now is that they stood up for, for their community when it needed something. And it looks like, you know, anecdotally, that they did drive down crime in that parking lot over about a three-year span. There was a big gap between violence in that parking lot during the nights that they were there. And uh, so, you know, uh, I'm going to prefer to see this as a story about the good in people who are standing up for the character of their neighborhood and giving of themselves to improve it. Yeah, I don't know Marty Jackson, but I saw her quoted as like talking to the people who there, I think there were there are two suspects in the shooting. It's uh, you know unsolved. We don't know what why they did this, but she's saying whatever you're hurting from, I wish we could have intervened, that we could have hugged you. We care about you. We need you to be healed. You know that that sort of struck me that that was uh, that really um, seemed to be the approach. This sort of loving we're still we're still we're all always all in this together approach well that's because there's so much love in the south end bill like we get the stories of the violence that the media likes to pick up on but there's also a lot of love and marty has been out there there's other organizations who weren't mentioned who are also out there like the community knows what's happening in this parking lot and the community has been there really trying to do the work of keeping people safe, having healing circles, and really just embracing folks. So I agree with everything that Eli said. There should be more people. There should be government. There should be all of this. But the reality is the community is actually out there 
our community, and I say our because it is me too, we are not just magnets for violence. We actually care about each other and love each other, and we try to do the work to uplift each other. And I think anybody who's tried to get a neighbor or a friend in Seattle to volunteer for a cause knows that it's difficult, and usually they want to just give money to it. What you have here is people putting their bodies, their lives themselves out there for their neighborhood to say this is the kind of place we want to be. Well, I'm glad you brought up the idea of getting a friend to volunteer because that is one way to make friends in Seattle is to go help somebody besides yourself, uh, which I bring up, Patrick, because the Seattle Times ran a piece this week about how hard it is to have a social life in this town. It felt like it was a lot of it was for people who are new here trying to figure it out. Yeah, it was like they wrote it for me. You know, I, it's like, I, it's oh. like, thank you, Seattle Times, for continuing to tell me how to live my life in Seattle. Uh, I'm not. I got here in January of 2020, so not that long ago, and uh, I'm not going to stop saying hello to people in Seattle, even though they don't say it back. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's part of the advice from the recent article in the Times was don't stop saying hello, don't stop being friendly, but also you got to recognize folks have a life. They've been building a life for many years here, and that doesn't mean they have a convenient spot to, you know, say, oh, good, we've been holding one best friend spot, you know, for any free (laughs) satellites that might land here from God knows where. Hmm. But, you know, coming from Washington, D.C., I saw the other side of the coin where most people are from somewhere else. And uh, so they are very welcoming and they're like, hey, here's where you should go to the grocery store. Here's your bus route and stuff like that. And quite honestly, you know, this is going to be disappointing to hear, but... Uh, I have made some great friends who are native Seattleites, but overwhelmingly the friends I'm making here are other people who've come from other places, you know, and uh, I think that there are enough of us now that we're we're finding our people. You know what I mean? And I don't think there's a problem with all of us intermingling, even if we're wearing sports shirts that offend you or whatever. But <laughs> But the truth of the matter is Seattle is still a fairly friendly place and a big bump in that friendliness comes from people like me who came from somewhere else. Well, I've here I've lived here a long time and have heard about the Seattle freeze for many, 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 many years. And I don't know, you know, if it if it was true then, of more so than other towns. I don't know if it's less true now because we have so many newcomers. Maybe that's been, you know, there's not such a freeze out. But what do you think? Is the Seattle freeze is it I real think, to you? I don't think it's real to me. Uh, I'm born and raised here, so I, I think it's different. I think the perception of Seattle gets people in a weird way because Seattle is so laid back, it's so slow, it's so casual, and then people don't speak, right? Because if you're in New York and everybody just has a place to be, then you get it. You're busy. We're not busy. We're just (laughs) not that nice. It's just a thing. I'm also born and raised in Seattle, and and I've been seeing this article get recycled for a very long time. So. Um, I, I think there's somewhat of a media manufactured thing. And then there's obviously enough uh, reality in it that it resonates with people who have recently moved here. I would say moving here in 2020, right at the beginning of the pandemic, that's a hard time for like making new friends and social interaction. Everyone was socially isolated then. So true. So, um, maybe the last few years are not the best data point on like, you know, Seattle lights friendliness. We were all uh, locked down. I I I don't know that I see a huge problem, but I'm maybe not the best person also because I grew up here and I have friends. And so I, I don't I don't totally get the Seattle freeze thing. I am happy, however, if Seattle is filled with newcomers who are not like icy people, then that's great. They can meet each other. <laughs> <laughs> Was that icy? Was that Seattle freezy? Actually, I think what you, you just touched on, and actually, Patrick, you kind of said something too about what you say, people land in here from who knows where. There is a certain um, xenophobia in Seattle, I think, that maybe has some of us grumpy you know, that didn't explain it decades ago. I've been hearing about Seattle Freeze for decades, and I, I, I would hear that it's because we were so Scandinavian, you know, and so silent and Lutheran and all this stuff. And, um, and my wife came here from Wisconsin, and, and we, she had a house-sitting uh, gig in um, Magnolia before we were married, and we were taking a walk together, and she would just turn to me, what you know, we'd say hi to people when we passed them and just nothing just the seattle you know why are you talking to me she'd say what's going on i do think it's absolutely real but i i i wonder if the latest reason for that 
has to do with some people feeling like we've grown too much. There's too many newcomers. And so that's made some, especially older people, frosty. I will say that I don't sense hostility in the silence. I sense low blood pressure, low energy. <laughs> and that's what I think what Michael said was right. I, I can think of the one time I've been like shouted down in a Seattle uh business and I'm waiting over at the liquor cabinet and I'm pressing the button, you know, come open the liquor cabinet. And there's a line of people for this clerk and the people stood up for casual slow down Seattle <laughs> style and started yelling at me like, don't rush her. You know, hey, what are you doing? Yeah. It's like, <laughs> Hey, so I think that it's just an easy goingness, you know, and I, I think it can uh, be mistaken. That's a nice way to put it. No, I honestly question? believe this. I believe what, it. What sports t-shirt do you walk around in? Oh, uh, this would be the, uh, 2021 Super Bowl champion Los Angeles Rams, for those of you who might be Seattle Seahawks fans. Mm-hmm. And then Detroit Pistons. You can't wear anything NBA in this city or you're going to get pounded, right? I mean, there you go. See, it's see, dead to them. That's not how you make friends here. <laughs> that's not how so, you So there should be a little asterisk next to me that, like, uh, you know, I'm not actively wearing the billboards that would be like, hey, here's a Kraken jersey. Here's a thing like mm-hmm. that. So we're easy to pick out, also. That's the other thing. Well, my my piece of tough love is that I do think the Seattle freeze is real, but so is the Seattle whining about the Seattle freeze. Like you, 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 it, it's it's awkward to put yourself out there and ask someone, "Hey, do you want to do this or that?" But push past it, you know. Like it is kind of on you to deal with it. You moved here. You moved here. <laughs> See, you went right back to the newcomers. Nobody turns down coffee here. That's one thing that I found. You yeah. guys, anybody, hey, you want to meet? You want to go get some coffee? Everybody says yeah every time. Yeah. I'll say, look, you get us in a room here. You got Seattle folks. You got non-Seattle folks, and we do just fine. I think it's a matter of just getting that face-to-face time, breaking that barrier enough to find what you've got in common. Okay. Agreed. Um, before we go to what made us smile this week, Eli, you noticed a, a Seattle Times piece about where rich people go when they move away from King County. Why do you care where they go? There's a new, if they, <laughs> the fewer people, the better, right? Yeah, you combine the segments well because now, yeah. now you can point out the hypocrisy here. Mm-hmm. I, as a like, grumpy Seattleite, which mm-hmm. I guess is the role I'm playing here, I want people to move away, right? That should be my role. <laughs> yes. Um, the this article was interesting because it was about people who are moving away, rich people, and where they go. And and my frame on this story is just, you know, the listeners can kind of imagine this, like, finish this sentence. Seattle has a lot of problems, but at least it's not blank. What city would you fill in? You might say, well, at least Seattle is not Phoenix, Phoenix or Idaho or Florida or <laughs> New Florida, Jersey yeah, or maybe Utah. Right. Mm-hmm. All of those are the places that the rich people in Seattle are moving. It's like one, two, three, four top places for the rich to flee Seattle to. Yeah. Ski resorts out. New Jersey. No ski resorts in New Jersey. Yeah. Can't explain that one. Yeah. So it just had me with my like native Seattleite bias, I think, a little stumped. What's what's the draw? Mm. I agree. Who moves to Idaho? Like that just doesn't even sound right to me. Lots of people. It's it's Boise is blowing up. Really? Yeah. Wow. But isn't there also, didn't I read something recently about a measure of buyer's regret from some folks who've made that leap and maybe the pandemic didn't last as long as they had hoped it would? (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) I'm also going to, and this is just, again, I'm back to my rampant speculation from earlier. But uh, these are all wealthy people. This is a Seattle Times analysis of wealthy people moving away. So, you know, I'm going to guess there's uh, a higher percentage of conservatives. I'm just going to guess in this group. And they are moving to places that kind of map on my sense of where a conservative fleeing Seattle would like to go. Uh Florida was on that list. Yep. They're more okay with Florida. There's (laughs) no income tax in Florida either, and they kind of like that. Yeah. I mean, what could be further ideologically apart politically from Washington State and Seattle than, say, Florida or Nashville, these places that, like, are – full-on assault on LGBTQ plus people from laws and things that like it might be the ideological divide that uh, that Eli mentions because I was just scratching my head for like I can see maybe Arlington Virginia is because there's a new Amazon headquarters nearby maybe you know there are reasons for Florida it, it's got no income tax like mm-hmm. us and uh, it's got water like us but Nashville 
I mean, <laughs> are you bouncing because you want the country music scene there? I don't know. I just don't know what the allure of Nashville is as compared to Seattle. Well, we've got less than two minutes left in the show, and I, I want to know, something's keeping you here. Something's making you smile. Anything smile-worthy this week? Lake Washington? It was hot this week, yes. and I was able to bike down and jump in, and that was lovely. Oh, Lake Washington made you smile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nice to have. I am officially studying for my fantasy football draft. Uh-huh. The Seahawks season is back, one of my favorite times of year, so that is definitely making me smile. Okay. Patrick. Well, nuclear weapons are making me smile <laughs> at the moment. And it's, Sorry? It, nuclear weapons. Oh. And this is mainly uh, because I feel like the Oppenheimer movie has generated so much attention to this often forgotten existential threat. It really is nice to see uh, people, you know, at least paying attention and hopefully starting some conversations around how we can be a safer world. Yeah, nuclear weapons makes me <laughs> grin as well. So it's <laughs> so relatable. Well, maybe this uh, maybe this will be another factor for me to consider in the whole freeze thing. I was just going to say, maybe don't lead with the existential <laughs> threat <laughs> thing when you're trying to make new friends. Yeah. I appreciate the tips, guys. Watch, when I come back next time, I'm going to have so many friends. <laughs> We, it's time to go, and I just want to leave you with a, with a word that I hadn't heard. This is uh, Dr. Martha Billings uh, from Sleep Medicine Center at Harborview telling you, look, if there's another heat wave, try showering before bed. Taking a shower before bed can be helpful. I've seen people take a hot shower to kind of vasodilate or taking a cool shower and just getting especially your head wet, and that can really cool your body down. Um and then kind of relax you as well. Did she say vasodilate? Dr. Nathaniel Watson of the UW Sleep Center? What's that? I mean, vasodilate. It opens the blood vessels in our skin. So more blood is able to go through these areas, which can then dissipate the heat that the body needs to release in order to have the body temperature drop one or two degrees. Got it. Let your let your vessels open wide <laughs> with a shower. So hot shower or cold shower. Where does that happen in life? Where where you could either take a hot shower or a cold shower, and it works in different ways. Kind of made me smile. I'm smiling. Thank you. Thank you. you. And that maybe the fact that there's not going to be another. We think there's not going to be another 90 degree uh, scourge the rest of the year. That makes me smile. Um, we got to go. Patrick Malone, Seattle Times senior investigative reporter. Eli Sanders, author of the Wild West Newsletter, and a, and a prize winner as well. Um, KUOW's arts and culture reporter, Mike Davis. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, Bill. See you, Bill. Thanks to our producer, Kevin Kanista. Thanks to Bernard Wallet on the board, and we'll see you in a week for Week in Review. <laughs>